Right, if you've got a Bible with you and would like to turn to Luke's Gospel, we're in Luke chapter 7, and I'm reading from verse 36 down to 50. I'll just wait for that to come up on the screen. If you've got a Bible with you, or if you've got a phone and you want to follow the reading, that's brilliant as well. Here we go. So Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she was stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my hair with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Lord, as we encounter you in this story, we just pray that you would open our hearts as you open the heart of Simon. Lord, just point us to what what is going on deep inside and how we need to be changed by you to become those lavish worshippers, those who who just long to praise you with all that we have. So Holy Spirit, would you bring life to your word today? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to just think for a moment. How do you think? What's going on in your brain right now? Just pause. Pause. Think what's going on in your brain. If there's nothing, that doesn't matter, that's fine. (laughs) We're having a conversation in church, me and George, and I think about two or three other people the other day, about an inner monologue. Now, you know what an inner monologue is? The voice inside your brain that is constantly telling you everything that's going on. Now, that's how I think. I'm constantly thinking, all the time, non-stop, never ceases. About 70% of people don't do that. Came as a bit of an eye-opener to me. You might be one of them sat there now, and you may think in pictures. You may think in concepts. You may not think at all, whatever it is. But we all think differently. We all have different kinds of brains. But all of us, in some way or another, think. 
And all of our minds quite often reflect different things to the way that we behave. Now, we can call it the mind. The Bible often talks about the heart, the inner things that go on. So I wonder what your heart is like today. What is your heart like? Phil has already asked us that question. Where is our heart this morning? Are we like we looked at last week? Are we doubtful about God? Are we trusting? Are we faithful? Are we panicked as we look at the state of the world around us? Well, in the next section of Luke's Gospel, we read today that Jesus is anointed by a woman. And if you've got an NIV in front of you, you might see this cross-reference to the events at Bethany in John chapter 12. Some writers suggest these are the same event. I don't think necessarily they are. I think there may be two separate events where Jesus is anointed, but anointed in a similar way. But I want to set the scene for a moment because I think we can miss quite a lot if we don't understand what's going on. So the scene is that Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee called Simon. Now the Pharisees, if you can remember about the Pharisees, they are this law-keeping religious group. They're very passionate about keeping the law of Moses. The Pharisaical group, they've been around for about 200 years. They grew up in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where for a short period of time, Israel had self-government, but the, the, the rulers were not brilliant, and so they decided, we need to get back to stricter law-keeping. We need to make sure that we're fulfilling the law of Moses. And so they not only fulfilled the law of Moses, but they added to it all kinds of details. And so they were very passionate about keeping the law. The reason for that, they believed that if you kept the law well enough, God would look on Israel with mercy and would send the Messiah. Problem is, when the Messiah came, they didn't really recognize him. They were so caught up with their religiosity and their appearances that they didn't notice who Jesus was. But Simon is a man of deep religious conviction. Now, we often give the Pharisees a bad press, sometimes rightly, but in this story, it's a bit of a mixture. Because he is a man who wants to talk to Jesus. He is a man who would have all this law observance, but he is a man whose heart is actually God's, at least to some degree. And he invites Jesus round for dinner. Regular custom at the time. Now, in the ancient world, teachers, philosophers, religious leaders would often invite one another round for dinner. And they would recline and as they ate, and they would talk at great length about big issues you know, the issues of the day. They would talk about the meaning of life and everything. Well, there was not a lot else to do in the first century. You couldn't even get a book out because there weren't such things as books. You certainly couldn't watch Netflix. If you wanted to watch sport, you had to go down to the amphitheater and watch people cut one another to shreds. So there was a bit of limit for entertainment. So having people around for dinner and having these nice conversations was probably quite top on the list. Now, ancient hospitality demanded that if you went round to somebody's house... They should treat you really well. You see this later on in the account. You should be anointed with oil. You should be washed. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Remember that from later on in the Gospels? All those kind of things should happen. Simon is not the best host. He doesn't do many of the things expected of him. But into this scene of Jesus reclining, possibly on a couch or on some cushions, having this long-winded meal that would have gone on for many hours, a woman wanders in. A sinful woman. Now, this is an interesting thing. Do you remember from earlier on in Luke's gospel how we've seen this term, a sinner, used? It doesn't mean just somebody who randomly commits sin. We all do that. But a sinful woman is a category of person in the Jewish mind. It would mean somebody who had violated the law of Moses to such an extent that she would be an outcast of society. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what she did. 
Could be she'd had multiple affairs, something like that. Could have been she was a thief. Could have been she'd have been a murderer. We don't know, and it would be wrong to speculate too much. But she's on the outside of society. She can't get back into society. She's cut off. She's ostracized. And then she wanders into Simon's house. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was having a dinner party and a local notorious person wandered into my house, what would I do? Give them a chair. <laughs> what would you do? Seriously, what would you do? I'd be on the phone, I'd ring 999 and say, this local criminal has just appeared in my house. They've broken in and they're trying to eat my food. And I would be ringing the police or something. No, not, this doesn't happen here. She just wanders into the house. How does she do that? Well, first century houses, you could wander in. You could just go and wander around and say hello to whoever was there. That was the way things were. That's not even commented about in this story. That's not the unusual thing. But it's her actions. She seeks Jesus out. She comes to find him. And then she comes into the room. She comes weeping. She's got tears rolling down her face that are pouring over Jesus' feet. She then has this expensive perfume in an alabaster jar that she pours over his feet. And she anoints him effectively. There's a prophetic strand here. Jesus is the one who needs to be anointed for his burial. And this is happening here. And so we get three characters set up by Luke to have a look at. We get Simon the Pharisee, we get the woman, the sinful woman, and then we get Jesus, and then we get to ask questions of which one are we the most like. So the Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee. Simon is watching all this, and in Luke, verse verse 39, Luke writes, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. In other words, Jesus, if he was really a prophet, if he was really somebody who hears God, he would know that this woman is a sinner. He would know that she's a notorious woman. He would know that this isn't somebody you associated with. She's unclean. She's an outcast. She's on the outskirts of society. Now, if you're interested in such things, um, this is the first time in Luke's gospel we get to hear somebody's thoughts. This is what one writer says. We never see Jesus thinking to himself, Instead, Luke tends to use internal monologue for characters who are not noble or heroic. In fact, they embody self-centeredness. This is a prominent theme in ancient Jewish literature. What one says to oneself indicates wisdom or foolishness. What are you thinking at the moment? (laughs) What does it indicate? Wisdom or foolishness? What's going on in our hearts? Does it indicate that we're responding to God and have a deep desire for the things of the Spirit? Or are we indicating foolishness? But there's another prophecy in this passage that sort of gets a bit of fulfillment here. Simeon in the temple, earlier on in Luke's gospel, when Jesus is just a baby, speaks this over him. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. What's happening to Simon? Well, as we'll see, Jesus sees right into his heart and sees what's going on. So what does this reveal about Simon's inner life? Well, remember, he's a Pharisee. He's a religious man. He's meant to be a God-fearing man. But he does two things that are really wrong in this passage. First of all, he judges the woman. But secondly, he judges Jesus as well. He judges in two different ways. He calls out that Jesus doesn't know that this person is a sinner. Whereas the rest of society knew, and it would be perfectly normal for people to say, oh, she's a sinner, don't have anything to do with her. We know the dangers of that. We talk quite regularly about not judging one another. 
But I just want us to think for a moment about judging Jesus. Judging Jesus, because that's what he does as well. He points the finger and says, this man should know that this is a sinner. I wonder if we ever inadvertently judge Jesus or judge the Lord. Do we ever do that in our hearts? Because the thing that Simon hasn't realized is that Jesus knows what he is thinking. What are you thinking at the moment? I'm going to keep asking you this question. What's going on deep inside? Jesus knows it all. He peers inside into Simon's heart and he sees what's happening. And he sees that he is judging the works that Jesus does. I just wonder if in our own lives, if we ever inadvertently do that to God. Have we ever inadvertently spoken on behalf of God when we have no right to do so? When we've gone beyond what the scriptures allow us to say? I wonder whether we've ever found ourselves saying, surely Jesus wouldn't approve of that. Surely Jesus wouldn't welcome this person. This would be disrespectful to God. And inadvertently, we end up sitting in judgment over what Jesus is actually doing. It's actually quite easy to do. I find myself from time to time slipping into that way of behaving. Looking religious, looking the part, trying to fit the expectations, but inside, actually missing the point by a country mile. Let's move on. Let's have a look at the woman with the perfume. The woman never speaks in this passage, and we never hear her thoughts. We don't get an insight into what she's thinking, but there's a saying, isn't there? Actions speak louder than words, and we get to see the way that she behaves, and it's quite incredible. First of all, she seeks out Jesus. She knows that he's in town. She goes to visit him, and she goes into a house of somebody. We don't know whether she knows Simon, but she goes into a house somewhere where she knows she wouldn't be welcomed. And she comes to Jesus, and she comes to the one who she believes can do something to repair her tattered life, her life that is on the outside of society. And she comes, and she offers the hospitality that Simon didn't. She does all the things that Simon would have been expected to do. But she goes above and beyond. She's lavish in the way that she approaches Jesus. She brings perfume. Now, perfume in the first century, you didn't go down to Superdrug and buy it for, for a few pounds. It was many months' worth of wages to buy some perfume. And she comes and she pours it on the feet of Jesus as an act of devotion and worship. She may not appear to look right, but actually her heart is responding to God in the right way. Where's our heart today? Are we lavish worshippers of Jesus? Are we those who want to come and give our everything to him? But then after the thoughts of Simon, we have the actions of the woman... And then Jesus tells a story where the point comes in. Have you got a Bible there? Look down to verse 41, and Jesus tells this little story. And he's talking about a moneylender, and he's talking about two people who owe a lot of money to the moneylender. One owes 50 denarii, and the other owes 500. Now, if you want to get a loan in today's world, you go to the bank or a building society or whatever, it's all regulated by, is it the FSI or FSA, whatever it's called, Um, and you know know that you'll end up paying back what the bank has told you to pay. It's all organized. It's all reliable. This is more like a loan shark in the first century. If you start borrowing money from somebody, you've got no idea how much you're going to have to pay back. So borrowing money is a risky business. Just to put this amount into context, the denarii is about a day's wages for a semi-skilled laborer. So let's say £100. So if you owe 50 denarii, How much do you owe in today's money? 
5,000. If you owe 500, put a note on the end, 50,000. Now, 5,000 is an awful lot of money for somebody to pay back who's earning one denarii a day. Awful lot of money. Put a note on the end, and it just becomes a total impossibility. What happens in the story? We get the anomaly of a kind moneylender. He comes and says, both your debts are forgiven. Both your debts are forgiven. And then Jesus asks the question, who will be more grateful of what's happened? Verse 43, Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. And then Jesus makes his point. The debt is our sin. The things that we carry around with us, that we have done, that offend God, that hurt God, that hurt one another, that hurt ourselves. Only God has the power to offer forgiveness. Now, some people, like Simon in this story, they think they are okay. They think because of their religiosity, their outward um, sort of experiences and the way they behave, that they don't need the kind of forgiveness that sinners need. And so they start to feel quite self-sufficient. Whereas the woman comes in, she knows she is spiritually bankrupt. She knows she has nothing left to give. So what does she do? She just comes with a lavish, broken heart and pours it out at the feast of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus. Now, all of us, the Bible tells us, time and time again, without Jesus, are spiritually bankrupt. We are in a prison of sin and we cannot get out. We are alienated from God, from his heart for us in this life and the next. And even the most religiously lived life, the best lived life, the life that tries to dot every I and cross every T, does all the right things that demand external religiosity, still leaves this unpayable gap. We still cannot get to God on our own. And so Jesus says, actually, we all need a savior, don't we? We all need the forgiveness of God. And Jesus comes and he stretches out his arms and he dies for us on a cross so that actually we can know him once again. So here comes the point. The woman's lavish heart response to Jesus is because she knows how much she has been forgiven. It's because she knows how much she needs Jesus. Whereas Simon's response is he thinks he's okay. He thinks he's got it sorted. What's our heart like today? What's your heart? You know, I've been a follower of Jesus since I was probably this sort of height. I can't really tell you when, but I can tell you I got baptized when I was 18. And just to reiterate George's notice, um, if you want to be baptized and you're in that place today, come and talk to one of us. We've got people lined up for both those services. We'd love to baptize more and more people who want to follow Jesus. But I've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, and I have every intention of staying a follower of Jesus until I breathe my last breath, whether that be sooner or later. Let's hope it's later, but whenever God has that. But there is a danger, you know, when you've been a disciple of Jesus for a long time, that you drift into becoming a Simon. That you just, sorry for Simon's in the room. I'm, I'm just conscious there are two of you sat there looking very sorry for yourself. Um, but if you drift into becoming a Simon, you drift into that way of thinking that thinks, actually, I've got it all sorted. All the answers, I've got them all. I'm, 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 I'm sort of self-made in my spirituality. Rather than thinking, actually, you know, I'm just broken. I'm in need of a savior. I'm constantly in need of a savior. There is nothing I can do to get myself to God. Only Jesus can forgive. Only Jesus can restore. Only Jesus can renew. And we can easily drift into that Simon mindset, looking right, being appropriate, 
worrying about what other people will think of us, trying to make sure we're saying the things to look spiritual, rather than actually just having eyes for Jesus and saying the thing that matters is not what other people think, it's what Jesus sees deep in our hearts. What do we want to hear when we do breathe our last? My good and faithful servant. Not where you were great at rule keeping, but that you missed the point. But my good and faithful servant. Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Who are we more like today? Are we more like the woman or more like Simon? Who are we more like? Are we lavish in our response to God because we realize that we've been forgiven much? Or are we sort of spiritually uptight because we think we're all sorted? Let's have a look at Jesus in this passage. See, Jesus has another application that he wants to bring out. In verse 44 to 45, he openly criticizes Simon's lack of hospitality and contrasts it with the welcome of the woman. Simon paid no honor to Jesus in the way that he should have done. Yet the woman fully welcomes Jesus, fully um, accepts who Jesus is and weeps openly over her sin. She comes in obvious anguish and in faith. Well, who does Jesus welcome? Who do we see him welcome in the, the New Testament? Was anyone who comes like this, doesn't matter what they've done, where they've been, what's gone on in their lives, he welcomes absolutely everybody who comes to him in repentance and faith. Who are the people that Jesus' challenges? The people who think they've got it all sorted. What are we like as a church? What are we like as churches? Do we welcome lavishly? Are we a church of lavish welcome? We were talking about this at Pastoral Team the other week and saying sometimes we get it wrong and people come here and they're not that welcomed. And we need to make sure that we are a lavishing, welcoming people. Called to welcome just using the categories of Jesus. That everybody who comes to him in repentance and faith is welcomed. So back to the question. Where's our heart? What's going on in our minds? What are we thinking about? What's going on deep inside? See, right at the end of the chapter, Jesus makes the proclamation to the woman. Your sins are forgiven. You know, when we come to Jesus, like the woman, what does Jesus say to us? Exactly the same. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. That word peace, shalom, go in the wholeness of of God. Be made whole because of what Jesus has done for us. Faith in Jesus, trusting in him, is what alters our reality, isn't it? It's not our religious behavior. It's not a box-ticking exercise. It's not trying to look the part, but it's about Jesus. Out of this grows lavish worship. We sang just before, didn't we? I will give you all my worship. Not a little bit of it. Not a tiny heart response, but all my worship. Let's make that our prayer. So we come effectively full circle. Today, I don't know if you're in the mindset of Simon. I don't know if you're in the mindset of the woman. I don't know what kind of mindset you're in. I don't know how you think, whether you think in a monologue or think in pictures or whatever. But what I do know is that God sees our hearts. He sees what's going on deep inside. And he longs for us to be those lavish worshippers. The thoughts of our hearts will be laid bare. What will Jesus find in our heart today? And what can we do about it if our hearts are not in the right place? Well, I think it's very simple. Look at the cross. Look and see at the one who paid it all. Look at the one who died and rose again for us, out of love. Let me pray for us, and then Phil will come 
I'll lead us in some responsive worship. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for this amazing account of when you, when you met with this woman who poured perfume over your feet. I just want to pray that sometimes we can be so reserved in our culture in the way that we worship, so afraid to, to pour out emotion to you for fear of what others may think. But Lord, I just want to pray that we would become more like this woman in our, in our response to you, this lavishness, realizing that we have been forgiven much and so we have much to rejoice in. So Lord, I want to pray that whatever this week holds, that you would turn our hearts to you, that we would come to you as people who lavishly praise and worship you. Just pray that you would use us so that your kingdom would grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.